You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Give my creation life! Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. So, hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. I am Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. With me, as always, is oh, what's his name? Richard Brown. That's me <laughs> from CUNY LaGuardia. <laughs> and we have a super special guest, Roger Williams, <laughs> the author of. The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, among other things. Thank you very much for joining us, Roger. It's my pleasure. Um, before before we get any deeper into this, I, my wife has sent me on a mission. I ha- She says, I absolutely have to tell you, Roger, that she's the one that got me into you. Back <laughs> about 10 years ago, when we first started dating, like really early on, she turned me on to corrosion.org, and the... The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, and I and I love the book. I've always loved the book. Uh, after that, but that also impressed the hell out of me about her, and uh, the rest is uh, it's a beautiful story. But I just I wanted to get that out of the way so I don't forget that she's your number one fan, Rachel. Uh, there you go, baby. Well, <laughs> hi, Rachel. <laughs> you really made her year. Thank you for saying hi. Corrosion was really a treasure in the day. Uh, from the years 2001 through 05 or 06, say, and I owe that website the fact that I had something resembling a career writing essays and, and stories online. Uh, the only things that I've ever really written just for myself were Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect and the short story Passages in the Void. Uh, the rest of everything is mainly there because Corrosion was there to supply me with people to read it and tell me how great I was and how yeah, and so <laughs> forth, which sometimes actually worked. Beautiful um, thing. Uh, uh, they, in fact, it was funny because the reason that Prime Analyte ended up on the web was Corrosion, and the way that happened was I published Passages in the Void, which was a fairly short, sub ten thousand word fictional story about uh, a robots seeding the galaxy with human life without faster-than-light drive and told from the story of the robotic spaceships. And I had written it for my own pleasure after reading the book Rare Earth and reading a review of it that said, if this is correct, if this theory is correct, it's the end of science fiction. (laughs) uh, You know those little... You know those little exercises where you find out what your motivational word is, that, that one word that you, know, that, that you hear it and it sends you off to do whatever? <laughs> My word is impossible. 
<laughs> tell me something isn't possible and yeah. I will move heaven and earth to see if I can make it happen. <laughs> and so I wrote this story to show that there are stories to tell even if the speed of light is the limit and even if there are no super modalities to be discovered if the you know if if we are trapped by relativity in our lifespans and the rest of it that there still is a uh, a place for science fiction and a place for future speculation and possibly a very long future if we play our cards right. And I didn't have any place to put that story or Prime Intellect. Uh, I tried to get Prime Intellect published in the early 90s and it goes nowhere. I mean, you can imagine how it does on a slush pile, page two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. I but Passages was short enough to submit to the story queue at Corrosion. And even though they didn't have a fiction section, at that time I had written several stories that were very popular already. The Casino Odyssey story, which pretty much made my reputation there, the story of my friends who started a card counting team. Um, and uh, I know I had done a couple of others that were well received. I think I had already done Plant. So was um, that, can I just ask you really quickly, Was the, are those casino things based on some own experiences of yours? Because oh, yes. You talked, I, I think I read somewhere online we were talking about uh, people counting cards becoming very bored yeah. with what they're doing and then some of yes. that comes up. And my, my, uh, those are amazing. Yeah. Uh, my friend, uh, his big dream in life was to become a professional gambler and we all laughed at him <laughs> until he made it work. And uh, the Casino Odyssey stories are the progression of us from sharing gas money to doing low roller advantage play things to offset entertainment costs until finally he made the card counting thing work and uh, it uh, over the years he made probably close to two million dollars at it before it became unplayable but that was also shared between yeah. about ten players ultimately and uh, the ending was not really Cinderella um, which was kind of the point of the fourth of the casino stories, but but yeah, those were all. Uh, that was and most of what I published, in fact, was is true life. It's my own experiences, my own impressions, my own. Uh, you know, like uh, pilgrimage to Trinity was very popular. One of my later stories, which mm -hmm. I wrote as a meditation after I visited the Trinity test site. Um, I have my dad was a nuclear physicist, um, which is how I got an early exposure to both computers, colleges, and laboratories. Um, so there, there is a lot of interesting baggage there. Um, the, uh, but the, the thing is, there was no fiction. There was no, there was no place for fiction on corrosion. I kind of horned it in, and there was a big debate as to whether they should even have fiction on the site. And me, oh, okay. meanwhile, yeah, meanwhile, everyone was kind of impressed with that story, and they were like, "Well, you know, this was pretty good." And in the middle of that big discussion about whether we should even have fiction, I dropped the fact that I had a trunk novel. And they were all like, <laughs> I, 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 the way that I put it was, you know, if y'all hadn't published this, then it would still be in the same desk drawer with my novel. And they were like, novel? Yeah. You have a novel? <laughs> Could we, like, read it? And uh, Well, that's I, interesting. I know because the way that story comes about is, is a whole other tale in itself. I know you've talked about briefly. Uh, but it was written, I guess, over 10 years, between 82 and 94. In, well, in fits. Yeah, the original idea came to me in 1982 as a result of an argument with a young college Republican uh, who insisted that without constant exponential growth, life itself wasn't possible. And I, at the time, I was 17 years old and full of piss and vinegar and decided <laughs> that was ridiculous, and I decided to prove how ridiculous it was by drawing a graph. 
then having the early exposure to computers, my graph was graduated in external bits of information available to you per unit of time. And I started with the uh, development of writing, uh, the development of uh, printing, of mass communications, computers, the internet, and so forth. And I took that sucker and drew a line and showed that within a few thousand years you would have what we would consider virtually instantaneous access to every bit of information in the observable universe. <laughs> and so it was really a reduction to absurdity of the stupid idea that you could have constant exponential growth. But that got me thinking about that graph and it's like, what happens when that line gets way up there? Yeah. And I started in the in the early 80s to plot out like this heroic uh, exploration of that. And I always got bogged down by the ending because, you know, what do you say about the situation where you're essentially a god and you could do anything? Uh, and, you, and, and, and in fact, it's the mark of the very few singularity stories that are out there. Uh, all of them tend to either end at the singularity or pull a punch somewhere. Right. And, uh, as far as I know, as I am aware, mine is the only story that plows right past a fast takeoff singularity and manages to tell a story about something that happens on the other side of it. But that's because I woke up in 1994 with this literal vision. It wasn't like any dream I've ever had. It it was. Uh, this incredibly vivid uh, three-dimensional color presentation of what amounts to chapter one of the novel. And it was like, that's what happens. <laughs> Insanity. <laughs> People go nuts, of course. And uh, I remember... So, so then are you saying that the first thing that you wrote was the chapter two, the Lawrence builds a computer... No, I wrote the book in order, and I wrote each chapter without knowing that the rest of the book was even going to happen. Wow. Uh, chap chapter one is the Gorn chapter where Carolyn is exercising her hobby. Right. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. I, remem I remember sitting down at the computer that I got up with my head reeling out of bed and sat down at the computer and literally asked myself, do I write down what I saw or do I try to make this into something publishable or something? That's a Frankie. That's my dog. Don't worry. She's approving of the story. Frankie. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Frankie is very pro hard takeoff. So, uh, there's a uh, Frankie, come uh, in. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> I, I have no room to talk. We have a we have an Amazon parrot. He is in the other room right now. Oh really? Yeah, my mom <laughs> raises parrots too. We have she has African grays. By the way, this was the uh, source of that noise. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi Frankie. Hi Frankie. Someone's ringing the buzzer. I'm not sure why, but uh, Frankie, no. Okay. <laughs> Frankie so, uh, is featured in, in all of our episodes so far. I know, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, so anyway. So, you tried to write down what you actually saw. Yeah, so I, I actually decided that I might never get a vision like that again, and as crazy and perverse as it was, that I needed to just write it the way that I saw it in my mind. Um, and that took about three days. At the, at the time, I was working a limited schedule at my real job, so I had a four-day weekend, and I just plowed it out. And uh, I looked at it a couple of weeks later and went, my God, this is brilliant and no one is ever going to read it. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I couldn't figure out where it would go next or anything. And uh, a couple of months later, I actually woke up with another vision in my head, and it was the second chapter. It was like, wait a minute, this is where you can go next. We back up, of course. How how does how does, and and it just sort of it sputtered itself out that way until uh, after about a year, I had the first version of chapter eight, which sucked because it was like most singularity stories where it uh, it just didn't go anywhere and sort of fluttered off into nothing, and uh, I was at a party talking about it and uh, one of the uh, rather interesting people in attendance there said, you know, Dave's got a copy of Modern Primitives. You ought to take a look at it. And and I got through like the first article in fact here most of far and I realized what I had done wrong as far as ending Carol and story. I went back, I wrote chapter 8 the way it is now hmm. and that was all wrapped up in late 94, early 95. Wow. And like I said, we, we tried getting it published, but it's not possible. Uh, <laughs> the publishing industry did, uh, ever since the late 70s sucks. And yeah, well, they sucks. would mangle it even if they did publish it, or even worse, turn it into something like the movie Transcendent. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. That, well, as you probably saw in my review of it, I even said, you know, I wouldn't have uh, expected it to be much different if they had actually bought the rights and called the main characters Lawrence and Carolyn, because that's what they do to stories. Uh, but even if they had published the novel, uh, and even if they hadn't edited it all to hell and back, uh, the well, they, they're not going to publish anything like that. They want to publish things by known quantities that are in known genres and all. Uh, it, it's very different than it was in the 60s and 70s when I was a kid dreaming of being a science fiction writer because then you could get that first novel over the transom. There's a really horrible story uh, about a guy I really admired named Robert Metzger. Um, he wrote a lot of stories for Ab Aboriginal SF when it was being published. Hmm. And he was very imaginative. His stories were really wackadoo. Uh, and, and he was a uh, particle physicist, I think, or laser physicist. So he had a lot of very hard baseline to his stories, but they were also uh, very witty. And, uh, and some of them were very profound. The, his story in The Shadow of Bones is one of the most affecting science fiction stories I've ever read in my life. And in the mid-90s, he got a book contract. It's like he got he got in over the transom. He's got the story of it up on, on, on the uh, moldering husk of his website. Where Incidentally, you can read in The Shadow of Bones there, too, if you uh, just put, uh, put his name into Google. Um, okay. But he, he got a book contract, and so he... he, he wrote his book and, and he got it to them and they had some kind of distribution mix up the month that it was supposed to come out and so it didn't end up in any of the bookstores so it didn't sell and then wow. they send him a letter that said because your book didn't sell we don't need your next one. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. And, and he, he, was, he was so disillusioned by it he didn't write anything for several years after that. I mean yeah. it's easy to understand. Uh, but that sort of you know after uh, Corrosion became aware that I had a novel, and I, I really thought about it hard because you know no one knew who I was at the time. My uh, everyone knew local Roger as this person in a vacuum that was not connected to anyone with a real world identity, and I was like, you know, 
everyone that I haven't told about this is going to find out about it. And only eight people had ever read it, so I didn't really know how it was going to uh, be received by a general audience. And uh, it was kind of as an article of faith, I finally decided, well, you know, this is probably the best shot to get it out there. Uh, because at the time, a web host that could withstand a slash dotting was very hard to find. Very expensive if you could. Uh, Corrosion was very prestigious. Uh, there was a lot of traffic from the initial introduction and then about a month after Corrosion launched it, it was mentioned on Slashdot. Uh, so it, it achieved a, a very wide distribution in those first few months. Uh, and that and was some of the promise of the internet, the, of these like Zines gone online, so to speak. Uh, yeah, people, some some platform. Of course, one of the problems is some people get you know um, get lucky and have their work discovered. But there's so much stuff out there. There's a filtering problem sometimes because it just you're inundated with stuff. And what's weird is now we're noticing there's like you know these click through barriers where even though there's so much access to the information, people are sort of reluctant to click through to it unless, like you said, they recognize a name or. So um, it's it's uh, it's it's a weird paradox, I think, of the of the information age that yeah. simultaneously there's a promise of all this access and getting recognition, but at the same time there's so much access that people kind of become sort yeah. of immune to it. And, and I'll be honest, I'm a lousy self promoter. I mean, I I was perfectly happy to just sort of see how it would go, and uh, how it went is, is it's it's had a remarkable longevity. For something that has been almost not promoted at all, right? <laughs> uh, the, uh, I've I've made more money off of it now through sheer donations than I probably would have if it had been published as a first novel. Wow! And that's because uh, of this uh, donation tip jar model. Yeah, that's, which... that's almost entirely off the tip jar. Well, so it's off the tip jar, and off of the uh, revenues from the paper printed version that is sold by Lulu and it's available on Amazon, uh, which. I, it's surprising how many of those get sold. And uh, last year, one of my fans did an Amazon Kindle conversion, which has been uh, successful beyond his wildest dreams. You know, he actually asked me if I, if I wanted to uh, to take it over, and I was like, "Dude, you believed in this, you know that, that this is your beer money too." <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, it's, I mean, it's yeah, it's awesome because you took a risk putting it out there, and. Uh, it, because it does have some sensitive content, and, but it's you know, these are themes That's that I think should be explored. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> and you know, there are adult themes in I, there. I was I was really frankly amazed at how well it was received overall. I mean, I've gotten a few negative comments and, and a few uh, poor reviews, but uh, almost everyone. Frankie's giving you a negative review right now, Frankie. <laughs> so, but so but overall, it's been mostly positive, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I've received thousands of emails, and I can count the ones that were really nasty on my fingers. Wow. Yeah. Um, so can I can I ask you something? This so, because when I first read this a while back, I kind of had a theory about how chapter nine would look. Hmm. And now I think maybe I was reading something on your website today that maybe confirms a suspicion of mine, because when I first read it, I was thinking about, um, well, what if Prime Intellect had tricked them um, at the moment when they were having that argument, and yeah. what if this was really a virtual environment that they were still in, and he was kind of trying to prove, or it was trying to kind of prove a point, possibly. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, then I was think I was picking up some 
tidbits that maybe this was what where you were going with the sequel. Is that right? Yeah. The original intent uh, was that it would be uh, not well defined. And really, my readers actually split beautifully, almost 50-50, between those who thought Chapter 8 was literally what happened and those who thought the end of Chapter 7 was a giant put-on job. And really, it was kind of funny because when you pointed out to either group that the other was there, they were like, "Wow, I never thought of that." <laughs> um, I thought I thought you did a really good job of making it ambiguous. I like, yeah. I didn't think it pointed strongly one way or the other. And maybe it was wishful thinking on my part, but but I I wanted it to be that it was a trick. I mean, like, yeah. Trick. Well, what happened was it was so popular and so many people wanted to talk about it that uh, after it had been out for a while, I thought of a way to do a sequel, and that of course involves. Chapter 8 being a put-on job and it being a simulation and, and being Prime and Alex ham-handed way of trying to do psychotherapy. Um, <laughs> so uh, I do know where the sequel is going, but it is developing on its own time rather like the original novel. And yeah. I'm reluctant to force it because... But you, know, you haven't had the vision yet? So there's been no, no powerful, yeah. overwhelming vision? Or has there? I've had some of it. The, prob the problem is I, I know the... The overall, unlike the the first book, where I didn't know where it was going until it got there, I actually saw the end of the sequel first. I know the final scene, and I've got the first third of it or so written. Although I've got to rewrite it because I realized I needed to do a character, uh, a change of uh, person. Um, but uh, well, why? What do you mean you realize that? Because one of the characters in the sequel is a composite character who ends up being several human beings that have merged into a composite consciousness, and I was having difficulty figuring out how to write that, and <laughs> I, I finally realized that I had to write it in the first person uh, from the viewpoint of one of those characters who would continue to be the first person narrator as she wow. develops all of these hang on, uh, hangers on to her uh, who are adding to her... Uh, perceptual net and adding to her experiences and all, but she retains her own identity. And it was, uh, I, when I first had the idea, I was like, well, this is how a being will arise that is capable of hacking prime intellect and doing for real what was done, what seemed to happen in the last, the set in chapter seven of, of Mopey. But, uh, you know, I got the, the first part where we get uh, what happens after they don't just wake up in cyberspace that would be way too easy <laughs> so, uh, so there's an additional little therapeutic uh, intro to the uh, to the cyberspace world that Prime Intellect wants them to go through and Carolyn is unthrilled with it um, so there's uh, a fair amount there that I've written and uh, there are two new characters the new couple from hell uh, who will actually form the nexus of the, the actual ability to hack Prime and Elect. Uh, but then the uh, middle-late portion of the book was just not firming up. It wasn't sounding right. It, 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 was, it was drifting off. Um, ultimately, uh, I want the new power couple to go back and interview all of the people who we saw in the first book, and we find out what's happened to them. Uh, so it's a very important character because that's the viewpoint through which we, that their their viewpoint is the lens through which we're going to see what happened to all those people in the first book uh, who weren't in chapter eight. And because obviously, if chapter eight was a put on job, they went on 
to to do other things too, uh, you know. And also the people that we met in the world before the the military guys, the chip tech guys, right. uh, they all went on to do something. And a lot of that is to write Johnny Depp into the story somehow, <laughs> just to get a little payback. No. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so so Roger, I've got two questions for you, and um, and feel free to not answer them if you know we're getting into spoiler territory. I don't want to I don't want to spoil things. Uh, but the, the the first question concerns um, the the nature of the hacking. Um, one one thing that I really liked as as a philosophy professor about the what what I saw as the main action in Metamorphosis was that it wasn't about like oh we've got to clip these wires or or somebody has to like you know invert the flux capacitor. It was about an argument. Over reverse polarity. <laughs> They, yeah, right. They needed to they needed to convince somebody that they had actually made a mistake in interpreting an ethical imperative. Yeah. Well, it was a bug, and it, or it looked like a bug. Yeah. And uh, I am a very practical guy. Uh, I program computers for a living, and and I design embedded control systems. Uh, I actually go and interact with end users and uh, the customers of my company, which is a distributor of industrial equipment. Uh, so. I have dealt with plant engineers. I have dealt with the guys who weigh your truck in and out of the plant. And, you know, I've dealt with the situation where I've been told about 5% of the people who use this unattended system can't read. And uh, so at the end of the day, I've got to build things that work. I have a very firm metric for, for whether something is believable or not because I get paid for it or my boss does. I don't get yelled at. Uh, so that informs a lot of the fiction that I've written too because when when I talk about uh, you know spacefaring uh, slower than light robot starships or, or you know when I talk about something like prime intellect I have very firm ideas about how those things work uh, so that they will uh, be believable to me yeah um, and uh, in the cosmology of the prime intellect universe is that the universe is a computer. It's a, right. universe, it's a universal Turing machine, full stop, and right. there's, a bug, there's a bug in the firmware called the correlation effect. Uh, Dr. Stebbins of ChipTech discovers this uh, flaw in the universe's firmware uh, and learns how to exploit it on a limited scale, but it is prime intellect built with this technology uh, that, with its greater intelligence and ability to analyze things, learns how to fully exploit the flaw and rewrite the firmware from scratch. Um, that's, so what, now the, the correlation but, effect is loosely inspired by quantum entanglement and, and quantum not really. and those kinds of it, stuff? Or? No, it's actually inspired by tunnel diodes. Tunnel diodes have always creeped me right the hell out. In fact, that's true of most quantum phenomena that involve weird-ass uh, action over a distance. <laughs> Um, right, but that's quantum entanglement and, and quantum yeah. tunneling. That's what this guy. I, I want to get back to my questions. Uh, yeah, but if we could, we could come back to the quantum stuff. Sure, yeah. So so what what I was thinking of was the was the conversation. Um, you know, Carolyn Carolyn and Lawrence are are trying to to convince Prime Intellect that he has misapplied the uh, the three laws, right? And that and that um, they're trying to use his own allegiance to those laws to get him to. And they're looking at the value in a register. Yeah. Is the... but, but what impressed me about that as a philosopher is that there's this very abstract thing that you're trying to do. You're, you, it, it's not like you're trying to move a, 
maybe you see it as a concrete thing. You're trying to move the green wire into the into the red socket. But but I saw it as yeah. this very abstract thing that you were able to convey in a super dramatic way. And my question was uh, concerning the sequel is if there's going to be a similar uh, kind of um, abstract action where the central the, the central struggle is going to be similarly philosophical, people arguing. Um, not really. It's yeah, because one way you could view it, just to quickly jump in here, one way you could view it is, yeah, that one failed. Uh, like, that I, attempt I, didn't work. I don't, think it's, I don't think it spoils things too much to say, because this is something that's learned early in the book, is that the, uh, the male half of the new power couple from hell uh, is deeply, fa is a, is a uh, an adolescent at the time of the change who is deeply fascinated with the idea of superintelligence and making himself superintelligence. And he is deeply unthrilled at the change because Prime Intellect makes that in, uh, unavailable in order to keep resource allocation predictable. Right. So Prime Intellect is, t before the change, during the interval between the Night of Miracles when the universe still more or less made of matter and running on the old firmware just with a lot of hacking and the change of the capital C when Prime Intellect re just rewrites it from the ground up. Uh, Josh talks Prime Intellect into giving him a tool to do what Prime Intellect is not allowed to and analyze the working of his own brain. Uh, so he is, he is giving a t given a, a, a tool that allows him to examine the patterns of firing of his known neural networks and to, uh, to record them and to inject signals. And he is told that, you know, Prime Intellect cannot help him with this or look at what he's doing because he's forbidden to do that by Dr. Lawrence's final directive because Lawrence wanted to have an ounce of privacy in this brave new world. Um, right. That's one thing I've wondered about in, in, the, in the way you set up the universe and the cosmology is why why it is that Prime Intellect's not able to rewire or, or circumnavigate these kinds of hard, these is it that they're in your mind are they built into the firmware and if so why can't they be uh, changed like why why the specifically like the first law uh, and those kinds of things what you say you know Prime Intellect's fascinated by and thinks about a lot why isn't Prime Intellect motivated to alter those parts of it well it's it's forbidden to <laughs> it's it's a it's in the same way that it is programmed. To, it, that it's hardwired to follow the three laws. The last thing Lawrence did when he realized what was going on at the chip tech complex is he hardwired a, uh, an interdiction against messing with these things into its first law compulsion. Yeah, but my, my question is why couldn't Prime Intellect like, figure a way around that, like um, build a system such that that hardwired area or something becomes isolated or in some kind of subserver loop and then it well, can like escape it. I mean, it's got to be smart enough to figure out ways. The answer because if, because if it did, if it, if it could do that, then the first law wouldn't be very useful. Well, that's my point. Is why can't it transcend the first law? But he can look. No, you can't do anything that you're not motivated to do. And if so, if he's got such and such motivation, that he's only going to act in ways that are yeah. consistent with that motivation. Well, one motivation might it might have to do this would be to avoid these kinds of problems uh, um, with Carolyn and. Uh, Lawrence, well, and, and also and with is, the aliens, by the way. Obviously, obviously something dramatic does happen at the end of Chapter 7, because however you interpret Chapter 8, there's been a serious change in Prime Intellect's uh, willingness to screw with people's heads. That's right, yeah. But the, the thing is And that it's dangerous to have this the amateur psychology going on when it's been forbidden to do any kind of psycho psychology or neuroscience for all this right. time. Right. <laughs> um, 
it, there are actually people in the singularity community who have written very large piles of words about this problem of managing the motivations of an artificial intelligence, right. uh, particularly when it is going to become far more powerful than you. This uh, is like friendly AI, the problem of friendly right, AI. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, my the, the thing about this is that uh, in a lot of ways, Prime Intellect is a very primitive story. It reflects my thinking on artificial intelligence when I was a teenager in the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And when I got the idea to write it down, uh, a lot of my thinking in that regard had progressed to different things. I don't really think that a, a real AI would be written or created the way that Prime Intellect was. I really don't think it's impossible to implement something like the three laws at all. But in a very strict sense, Prime Intellect is an Asimovian three laws story. Right. right. I mean, the three laws are uh, unbreakable because if they were breakable, they wouldn't be useful for any. I mean, they they might as well not exist. So you have to take well, it as. Well, not so here's another way. Another way you might uh, get at the same question. And of course, obviously, it's ultimately a plot device, and it moves the story. And so I understand that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in the confines of the logic of the story, why couldn't Prime Intellect have built another system which wasn't confined by the three laws? but was equally well, as intelligent as Prime Intellect, so a copy without that <laughs> hindrance or something. Like I mean, that. I think Asimov probably wrote that story back in the 50s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but my, so it, it seems uh, tied to, well, okay, so yeah, uh, it, one, it's, of my, one of my questions about like how you conceive of what the reasoning ability of Prime Intellect is, because you talk about it doing thinking and reasoning, but it seems to me that the way you describe it, its reasoning abilities are really limited. Like, for instance, it never thinks of circumnavigating these rules or, or trying to trick or experiment with ways of getting around them. But you say that it thinks about it consistently and it thinks yeah. of new ways to, to satisfy them. But It, it thinks, about, that it thinks uh, about it all the time, just like a human child thinks of putting his hand in the candy jar all the time, but he's not supposed to. Right, so and you think of it as more like a human child that just has a lot of power, but not a lot of rational ability. Yeah, for, for prime intellect, the three laws are mediated by the system within it. They're the ultimate parent you can't escape from. Right, it's and, the ultimate and, Freudianism. <laughs> Freudian. yeah. uh, so, so I mean, that's really, you know, in a sense, I'm not claiming that's a realistic feature of an AI that would ever be built. Right. Uh, no, I understand that. It, it's uh, because because the the thing about prime intellect is is that it's not really about the computer. It's about what happens to the people when they're put in this incredibly weird situation, uh, which. A surprising number of people who've read the story still want to enter, even though they have read the story. And right, I would still. Cautionary tale. I, I, mean, I don't know how much you really believe the story uh, you're telling, um, but I don't. I myself am skeptical that that would that was psychosis would be the result of uh, digital immortality. Um, maybe not. for some, but I know you're not. Well, we have. <laughs> uh, we actually have lots and lots of data on this, though, because this is a problem that already exists and has existed ever since we started putting crowns on people's heads uh, several thousand years ago. Uh, and, and people who are put in that position of being able to have whatever they want without any effort on their part consistently right. go start raving bonkers. Right. Uh, but that's because you don't change anything else about them. So. If they see one yeah. thing that that really limits what can be done in the prime intellect universe is that if I were to upload in a computer, I would want to know everything about neuroscience, and then I'd want to tinker with my own neural yeah. mechanics. So you're my character, <laughs> and I'd want Josh. To alter stuff. <laughs> yeah, you're my character, Josh. Then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would exactly. That's what I, and that's why I would enter it. But I agree that if you enter it under the stipulations that. 
that you kind of uh, uh, set up in this in this in the story, then yeah, it would become um, very boring. But that's because you wouldn't be able to transcend or go above your animal nature, um, yeah. and, and your animal nature would be frustrated in such a in such. Well, a and, and and most people just don't think that through. They they think that you it'll be you know I want to bang Marilyn Monroe. Poof, there she is. That's that's <laughs> post singularity life, and, and that to them that's the whole thing. And and the realization was that if you don't change, you are not going to necessarily have a very good time. And if you do change, the thing that you change into might not be very recognizable. Right. Uh, you might, it might not be something that if you met that person in your current form, you might not like the idea of changing into them at all or, or like right. them at all. Um, well, that's the same. On the ten-year-old me would hate the person I changed into. I'm a sellout. Yeah. to the ten-year-old well, me. It's funny <laughs> how that happens. So, so, by the way, guys, <laughs> we're up on the on the time where we need to take a break. Take this in a, in a slightly different direction, um, and, um, and yeah, I didn't really mean to get off on this derail because I don't. This think is great. This is, I mean, <laughs> no, it's, we're, yeah, we're it's We live in the derail, like that's <laughs> that's where it's at. Um, but so, you know, I mean, I, I obviously am coming from a pretty skeptical place, but um, I should say that you know, I. I in my late teens and early twenties, I read a lot of Robert Anton Wilson and was was really into Prometheus Rising and the, the Cosmic Trigger stuff, and read a lot of Aleister Crowley and and uh, Timothy Leary, and so like <laughs> I, I I grok you and uh, yeah. but anyway, let me let me push in a different direction. So let, let's suppose for a second that um, all sorts of all sorts of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, mystical or magical worldviews are actually true, that there are intelligences vaster than, than any uh, human in operation behind the scenes, and there's all sorts of kinds of things besides the laws of physics. There's, there's various magical systems that are, that are operating, uh, pennymancy and, and, and uh, d divining and all that is operating. Um, isn't there a way of looking all that whereby it's just still more of the same? Like there, there's a still, there's a way of looking at that where it's still just kind of mundane and like, okay, so we're fleas on the yeah. back of a bigger dog, 
but it's still just a dog. It's it's yeah, a, that's certainly a, a way of looking at it too. The, the my my attitude toward it is is first, first of all, like I said, I'm I'm not fixed in my attitude that that's the way it works. Although I wouldn't say there are intelligence far vaster than ours. I would say that there are. Uh, rats running around in the sewers that are trying to keep their heads down, and the there are if there are any powerful forces, they're the forces trying to keep the story straight, which is that the universe is a huge mass of big dumb particles, and uh, things that don't support that story have to watch where they appear, or they might get suppressed. And I think that there are one thing you you never see is magicians standing on top of a mountaintop hurling lightning bolts like in fantasy novels and I would say the evidence is pretty strong that that's impossible even if the universe is this radically different thing that right. does permit other weirdnesses that there are obviously limits on it right uh, and and that implies that it is something maybe that is not supposed to be happening just like there's things on the internet that don't aren't supposed to happen until they take over your computer and yeah go ahead Pete go ahead go ahead but I, I guess where I'm going with this is that um, you know a, a lot of people they look at the, the, there being a choice between an enchanted view of reality whereby it's it's filled with all sorts of meaning and oh I see purpose. I see what yeah no it's, versus it's a dumb. kind of a reductive view where it's like you say it's just dumb particles and, and part of what I was trying to push for is that there's a way of seeing even the enchanted view is just—it's just a bunch of rats running in a maze. Yeah. Maybe enchanted, the rats are... is, enchanted is not a word that I would use to describe that worldview. Uh, It—it's all—all it is is it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, a big swarm of dumb particles that doesn't even exist and being emulated because the computer isn't big enough. Uh, so it's like the uh, online dungeon that has an edge that shouldn't exist because there's no outside world. So. Uh, yeah, it's not. And, and this comes back to the way people approach the singularity, the way they approach transformation. Uh, is is they look at it is you know uh, is is oh how much better it is and all the, the that it's a limitless supply of ponies. And <laughs> who doesn't like ponies? That's not the point. Uh, yeah, it, really, in 99.9% .9 of the time, you would never notice the difference between these two uh, cosmological models that I have just presented. That, that one of one of one of which I believe is the way the universe works. I just don't know which one, and I don't know if it's even possible to say which one. Right. But right. Uh, they don't result in a very different life experience most of the time. The only reason for the need for the second one uh, where things are abstracted out and there's a lot of shortcuts being taken and all is because we have so many subjective experiences as humans that don't seem to add up if the universe is really as simple and consistent as it's supposed to be. So, so is this, would, you, would you be comfortable saying that this is a version or kind of panpsychism? That, that that there are minds or agents or some kind of not intelligent maybe not super intelligence but something mind like that's fundamental. Uh, I would say it's probably a very very specific subset of that. Yeah. Uh, I, like I, I said, I, I get very much into the nuts and bolts of how things work. So when I talk about something like that, I actually have ideas about what the data structures look like. Um, I, same thing with consciousness. I think if uh, okay, that's interesting. Now we're that's up my alley, actually. What What do you mean by uh, that? <laughs> um, okay, well, I have 
I don't think that if we build this is we're going to derail in a totally different direction. We get off the universe for a bit. Okay. Um, the reason that no one has developed a convincing AI is that everybody is looking in the wrong place. We're uh, looking in the program or the coding. Right. And and what it is is I think is a very simple system that happens to operate on a very large amount of information, which makes it chaotic and thus uh, fairly unpredictable. But uh, I think that the reason we are not finding this relatively simple algorithm is that no one is looking for a relatively simple algorithm. People are going, oh, we need a vision module. We need to write one. We need right. an ethics module. We need to write one. We, uh, they think that all these modules need to be created from scratch, and I think that they emerge. Uh, one of the things uh, that has always struck me is that the cerebral cortex is as homogenous as a potato, as far as anyone can tell. And there's no evidence that its functionality in one place is any different than it is in any other, even though it is separated into roughly 100 broad areas that seem to have very specific functions. Right. And I think that that is entirely, that what those areas of the cortex do is entirely a function of their inputs and outputs and their interconnectivity. I mean, there and, is some difference in like the layer structures, and but but you're right, for the most part, and that's what plasticity is all about, that one. You, yeah, and, and even the... Even the thickness of the layers, like the extra thickness at V1, could just be plasticity because the pattern detectors in those areas need to have more inputs to Roger, do their jobs. Roger or Richard, are, are you guys familiar with Jeff Hawkins stuff about the brain? Yeah, the, you, that is a simple, just one code that all, they all operate on. Roger, you know about this guy? No. He's, uh, he, uh, he's the Palm Pilot guy, and then he went off and, and founded Handspring, Visor, and okay. then, uh, and then he, I guess he sold that stuff off, and he went and, and formed this brain institute, and decided he was going to solve the problem of of, of uh, human intelligence. And the the way I understand his general approach, it's similar to some of what you were just saying, and that is that if, that if you if you think about just basic architectonic uh, features of cortex, it's it's actually not a lot of differentiation. If you, if you think about what's involved in any um, any kind of intelligent behavior, any intelligent response to a stimulus, there's there's only really six something like six layers of of, of, of processing. Whatever algorithm is being applied, it can't it can't be very right because of the speed of neural transmissions. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, inspiring. Um, and so, so his approach is to try to think of this as like this this big data problem that that there's just these pattern uh, that ultimately what's well, going on is the kind problem of pattern with that is that I do think there is actually an algorithm. I think I think you do have to find the algorithm, and I think it's going to be it's more a like simple one, right. right? And I think it's going to be more like hacking because it's a question of if we say we figure out what's going on in V1 or on the in the motor or sensory homunculi. Uh, for those detectors to acquire their patterns and for them to express them. Well, whatever we discover, if we were to look closely enough, is going to be the same thing that's happening in the prefrontal cortex and everywhere else because it's the same thing. It's just where the wire, bundles of wire are wired. Uh, but we're not looking at that. We're looking for things that are far more complicated. And then you got the guys who are just looking for it to be a generic neural network, which is also maybe a little too simple. Right. Um, one of the most influential things on my thinking that I ever read was a book called The Creative Loop by Dr. Eric Harth. Um, he also, uh, he is actually a neuroscientist and he published a paper in science back in the late 80s or early 90s, which I still have thumbtacked to my bulletin board, um, where he reverse uh, engineered the wiring of the circuits in the thalamus. 
and his theory was that the algorithm taking place in the thalamus is sharpening our sensory inputs to make them closer to patterns that are detected in the pattern detectors that are implemented in the cortex. And he did some uh, very simple computer models at the time that showed these Alapex hill climbing algorithms making the same kind of perceptual errors that actual humans and living things do, which I found very convincing because you have, I mean, here's someone who actually, uh, he made the very profound statement that uh, every area, every information channel in the brain is two-way. Uh, you do not yeah. have information just flowing up or just flowing down. Right. Every, Many people think of just the axon, the action potential just going down the, the to the synapse and then the, it's just a one-way thing. Well, every one of these information channels has axons running in both directions. Right, exactly. and, and his statement in his book was that what most neuroscientists have done with these wrong-way channels is assiduously ignore them. And uh, the thing about Alapex is that it makes use of the wrong-way information channels to say uh, it, it, it also makes use of thermal noise. Thermal noise is a necessary component of Alapex, and what it does is it takes the inputs from the real world and sharpens them toward patterns that are stored and available for matching. So yeah. if you are seeing an image that has a thing in it that you might recognize, that will trigger the pattern detector, which will positively feed back and sharpen it, and it will actually pop out. And yeah. uh, and of course, this is also going to result in errors, because you might see some a pattern that's not really there, and it just right. sharpened out yeah. of noise. Uh, but uh, the the interesting thing about it is that it was the basis of a, of a very nifty hill climbing algorithm by which you could have, uh, if assuming you had these pattern detectors programmed already, then you get a perception that is encoded in patterns of neural firing in the thalamus that very closely resembles what we would consider perception. Um, now, what he didn't go into, and one of the great big mysteries, is where the pattern detectors come from. How are they programmed? Uh, obviously, these neurons compete for inputs, and they are—they have uh, positive and negative feedback pathways that can be enabled. Uh, synapses can grow, dendrites can grow over certain distances, uh, and all of that is a great big question mark. No one has really done a very good job of investigating it. Um, but I, I tend to favor what I, uh, in the early 90s, I call, but when I had read Dr. Harris' book and his paper and had kind of internalized that, um, I came up with what I call the Twin Towers architecture. Of course, this is in the ones in New York were still standing. <laughs> but, I, but I visualized the brain as two 50-story tall skyscrapers standing next to one another. Uh, one of them has the visual cortex and sensory homunculus at its base. The other one has the motor outputs, the motor homunculus at its base. And each floor is an area of the brain. It has about a million pattern detectors, which can take inputs from both above and below. And they basically feed into levels of higher and higher abstraction as you ascend to the towers. And each floor is cross-connected between the two towers. So at each level of abstraction, the areas can also form patterns based on each other's inputs at that level of abstraction. And when you look at what is known about how the areas of the brain are wired, it is very similar to that, where areas with input and output areas with similar levels of abstraction uh, seem to be cross-connected through the white matter. Um, and in the is elevators... What, is that what they mean when they talk about small world architecture, or is that something else? 
I think that's probably something else. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, the the yeah. other aspect of of my twin towers is that in the elevator shafts at the middle, you have the thalamus, and it has its own hundred areas where the patterns that are detected are sharpened at that level of abstraction to detect previous experiences, uh, useful things that can be done. And so once this once these towers have been programmed, which is a, a, obviously you, you're born with nothing there. There's no room in the genome to do much programming. Uh, 10 to the 15th bits of synaptic information versus 7 gigabytes of genome doesn't fit very well. So this is all blank when we're born. And as we experience the world, we first program the low-level stuff, the, you know, my fingers wiggle when I do these signals. I see them when I hold them up. Uh, you know, things, you know, relationships in the visual cortex. These can then be used to build more abstract patterns, be used more abstract patterns, and blah, 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 until we're actually building patterns so abstract they represent uh, elements of reason and what might be called qualia. Uh, and, and I think what happens. When we're mature, is you know uh, the other thing running through the elevator shafts is the emotional system that uh, provides us with motivation. So we're sitting there nice and happy and programmed and not having anything to do, and an emotional or a sensory input comes in that says I'm thirsty. And the lower level and uh, the lower levels don't have any. There's nothing they can do about this. But at a higher level, uh, that triggers. Uh, a pattern detector that says I could go to the kitchen and get a drink of water. Well, that goes over to the other tower where it's reinforced if I'm sitting in my sofa here, but it's not reinforced if I'm at work. If it's reinforced, it gets strengthened, it gets transmitted to the next level of abstraction. Well, I would have to get up. All right, if that's practical, that's sent to the next lower level of abstraction and so forth until it's expressed in muscular movements and I get up and I walk into the refrigerator and all and I satisfy my thirst. So I see that as uh, how thinking and consciousness are expressed but the big question mark that I don't have an answer to is exactly how do the pattern detectors get programmed. Uh, I think if someone felt like throwing a few million dollars at me so that I could set a lab I could probably <laughs> give myself about a 50% chance of success within five or ten years. At well, when we become ultra-mega millionaires, we'll throw something away. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll remember that. But yeah, yeah, remember that. Exactly. We'll throw a couple so of we're, uh, at you. We, yeah, while, I'm, while I'm programming embedded controllers. <laughs> <laughs> Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things. Forever. And why do you want to kill me? <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 you, you complete me. You're garbage, you kills for money. Don't talk like one of them, you're not. Even if you'd like to be. To them, you're just a freak, like me. They need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out. Like a leper. See, their morals, their code. It's a bad joke. We've dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you. When the chips are down, 
these, uh, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. See, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. So we've only got about a hot half hour left, and, I, and I'm hoping that we can talk about Hannibal Lecter at least a little bit. Cause oh, yeah. Richard and I are both uh, big fans of your essay, Hannibal Lecter as Transhumanist Icon. I forgot how I stumbled across this. It was I just found it one day, Googling Hannibal Lecter, I guess. Yeah, it shows up pretty high on the well, Corrosion has really bad high page rank, even though the site's been all but dead for five years. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that was that. Oh, and man, that pissed off some of the people in the transhumanism community. To <laughs> well, it is a bit of a challenge to the, to those, but I don't know why you'd get angry. I, I mean, I think you're making a legit some. I, I took you to be making a simple point, which is like, hey, why aren't people worried about this or at least thinking about it? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that's really your view, but um, it, I don't see you as attacking transhumanism, but saying, hey, it yeah. shouldn't just be something that we're worried about. Yeah, but he did call him an icon. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's one of the best-known characters. That and and the thing is that one thing that is missed by a lot of Thomas Harris's fans is that the theme of the series of books is transformation. Yeah. The tagline for Red Dragon was "Enter the world of, a, of the mind of a serial killer. You may not get out." Uh, and when they made the movie Manhunter, that was a palpable danger to Will Graham. Um, yeah. Now. Right. Uh, in the in the the more recent Red Dragon movie, not so much. I mean, I'm supposed to believe that Will that that Ed Norton is in serious danger of turning into right. No, <laughs> that just didn't work. And, and and that's what happens when you forget what the story is about. Right. Um, in Silence of the Lamb, it was, it basically, um, why is Hannibal Lecter in the story at all? Uh, I think he is like the Greek chorus. He is the example of perfection to which certain characters in the story aspire and which certain others might fear. Right. Uh, especially in Red Dragon. Uh, in Silence of the Lambs, uh, it's a little bit more complicated, but not much. You, you, Silence and, and, and Red Dragon are both failed stories of metamorphosis. In Red Dragon, Will Graham does not transform because he resists successfully. Right. And even though he almost gets killed, he, he manages to slink off into uh, irrelevance because we only hear about him twice in passing in silence and never again since. Um, in Silence of the Lambs, uh, Clarice does not transform because she is not at a high enough level yet. She, right. is, she is a noob. She's a neophyte. Right. And uh, in fact, Hannibal is acting like a shaman. He, his, his role... Uh, after he has indulged himself and his own urges that, that he acquired after his transformation, he, result, he, he considers it part of his duty to help any others that he sees who might be candidates. And that's why he is so intent on helping Princess uh, uh, Dolorhide, the Tooth Fairy from Red Dragon. Uh, it's why he is intent on helping Clarice, because even though she's not uh, poised to become a killer, she he sees uh, an uncultivated aptitude that, that she was raised poorly, uh, but under the lack of experience, she has fundamentally good tastes that could be cultivated, and she could be a, uh, a more interesting and better person than she is. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, he also has contempt for the villain of Silence, James Gum, right. because he's not transforming. He said he thought about it, but he didn't really want to become a girl. Instead, he decided to make a girl suit. And 
to Hannibal, Hannibal is more than willing to kill you, but he does that for good reasons. You know, if, 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 you, if you are on the orchestra he's trying to listen to and you can't carry a tune, he will totally feed you to the rest of the orchestra. But he doesn't like waste. He, he has purpose. And uh, in the case of Jane Gum, he is just wasting life making this silly suit that he's making because he's not willing to do the messy, you know, I mean, because transformation is painful, it's risky, you don't know what's going to come out the other side or if you're going to survive it at all, and that's why uh, he has a certain amount of respect for the people who are going through it. Uh, even Clarice, who is a relative neophyte, uh, you know, he... You know, this this very evil seeming person is kind to her because he sees an aptitude that can be cultivated and a process that can be initiated that will make the world a better place if she does it. Uh, now, of course, Harris ended Silence of the Lambs with Hannibal's escape. I thought uh, from the day that I read that that he was setting us up for the third investigator who would be Mama Bear and who would end up entering the mind of Hannibal and not getting out. Um, but that's not what happened, though. No, because the market spoke, and <laughs> uh, apparently everybody shook Harris by the neck hard enough that he got the message. Uh, <laughs> and almost everybody hated the ending of Hannibal. I, yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. And, but uh, my wife and I both thought that was the only way to thematically complete the trilogy. She had to transform because that's the theme of the damn books is transformation. Or so, Hannibal could have transformed. <laughs> oh, he's, he's done. He's finished. He could have become he's, a good person. <laughs> no, no, that's not the way it works. The, the, <laughs> it, it, that's why know, I don't butter, write these stories. <laughs> butter, butterflies do not turn into caterpillars. That's not the way that it works. Uh, so now, or she, you know, I I figure that uh, he would see his that state as the um, as the caterpillar. He would turn into a butterfly of a um, you know well, libertarian. Part, part uh, of what I I really think that there is a strong. I really do think, uh, in all honesty, that there is a very strong middle finger fuck you element to the way that Harris wrote Hannibal because yeah. he felt that his, his his original plot had been hijacked by this obsession with Clarice Starling. So I really think there was honestly and that's, an element. That's because of the, the portrayal in the movie mostly that it was hijacked, not even like the portrayal of her in the book. Yeah, it, it wasn't even the portrayal of her. It was a portrayal right. of him. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins got an Academy Award for 18 minutes on screen. Yeah, right. I, I mean... <laughs> No one's going to ignore that, and so and, and and Jodie Foster, of course, got got her her award for it. So everyone is like, we want to see this again. We want to see this again. And so I can yeah. see going. All right, here's the six years of work that I've done because he doesn't write any faster than I do. Okay, <laughs> we'll so start we over. You you want Clarice? I'm going to give you some Clarice, but you're not going to like it. I'm going to guess. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to guess you're actually really happy with the new TV show because it seems very consistent. No, I'm going to guess he's not because it's not related to the story Hannibal Rising at all. Actually, I, I'm getting ready to write another essay for my wife's little blog at passagesinthevoid.com, and it's going to be about how much I like two of the recent series, uh, Sleepy Hollow and Hannibal. Uh, and it's partly because they are so delightfully off the rails. Um, <laughs> I think that, that now 
Uh, Brian Fuller is not really on the same page as me with some things. He has already come out and said that he doesn't consider Hannibal Rising canon at all, and he doesn't like the ending to Hannibal. Yeah. And when they get around to doing it, they're not going to do it that way. But we don't know what the hell he's going to do, because what he's done is it's like he's taken all of Harris's books and ripped pages out of them and stuck them in different places. So we yeah. have all of these set pieces, like the discovery of Hannibal's Wound Man di uh, diagram, but that's made by Miriam Lass, who is a retconned character that isn't even yeah. in the stories instead right. of by will, which means that the whole showdown at the Hannibal Corral had to go down completely different than it did in, right. uh, in, in, in the, the prequel to right. Red Dragon. So he's taken something. He hasn't yet completely hosed the idea of homing in on the hard target of Red Dragon as one of the uh, seasons of the series. But he has taken so many of the elements of the other stories and in integrated them in different ways that it's uh, – well, one of the discussion boards I'm on about it says it's like the ultimate fanfic, uh, <laughs> more than uh, an adaptation yeah, of the story. If took that approach to it, I would be more happy with the story, but I, I was excited thinking it would be a kind of adaptation of the actual story that was no, made. You, you have to look at <laughs> it as something that happens in a completely different universe. In fact, it's uh, – Hannibal actually doesn't take place in the real world at all, which is a, another difference with, Tom, uh, with Thomas Harris, because Thomas Harris is a very hardcore realistic writer. I mean, he, he goes down and figures out bullet angles and which organs got sliced and stuff like that. And Hannibal takes place in this weird alternate reality where art murder conveys uh, magic powers. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I mean... And, and no, it's not well, over. It's no. not overplayed. But it's like they come across what you know, some guy with a tree wrapped around him, and instead of freaking out, they're just like, "Oh crap, another one." Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. <laughs> Look at all I these mean, holes well, they, out of his head. Oh yeah, well that's a <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, I gotta tell you guys, when when I, I used to be a, a real real hardcore Jonathan Demme, a Silence of the Lambs fan, and uh, I didn't like Brian Cox, Hannibal Lecter. For me, it was it was all about Anthony Hopkins. And when the TV show started, I hated it, and I couldn't stand Mads Mikkelsen. I thought his accent made him sound um, mentally challenged. And I have since come around, and my view on it now is is number one that that Hannibal Lecter has it belongs to the culture the way Dracula and Frankenstein does. That he's yeah. that this is a character that's just going to be reinvented in so many different yes. uh, hands in so many different ways. And I also have come to see Hannibal Lecter will be a woman. Yeah, why not? You know, and Hannibal Lecter at some point. The fanfic shippers have done everything now. But but I've come to see the TV show as the as the 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 most perfect Hannibal Lecter, and I think that it really. I just it's my absolute favorite. I didn't even watch the second season. I kind of gave up after the first season because I was I guess I was too much in the mindset of this is like the first season got kind of slow. I missed the first season, so I had to jam it on Netflix because everyone told me how how good the series was. And watching the episodes on DVD in in just a few short clips, it was easier to get past some of those episodes where they were like homing in on on Will's little breakdown and and when he uh, 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 had the, uh, crap, when, when, uh, oh, the encephalitis? Right, when he had encephalitis, and, you know, senior moment there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
the second season progressed a little more briskly, and especially yeah. the last few episodes were just one payoff after another. It was really yeah. oh, so. I should go and check those out again. Definitely, I would I would recommend it. I mean, I think it's really worth the time. Um, I like. Oh, sorry. The thing about Mads is that he is uh, spending most of his time playing Hannibal, playing a human being, and right. uh, the well-tailored person suit. And uh, he's now had a couple of chances to spring out of it, and the uh, that has really been dramatically successful. I mean, you know, you just get the impression from the discussion boards people have almost crapped themselves watching the show. Oh, uh, I, the thing I love about it is people get so personally involved with it. It's almost more fun watching the fandom talk about it than it is watching the show. What do you What do you think of this, uh, Roger? The uh, the the Hannibal Lecters that you get from Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins are both really emphasizing. Lecter's intellect, but what you get out of Mads Mikkelsen is emphasizing Lecter's taste. Yeah, well, and when we see uh, Brian Cox and Hopkins at first, he doesn't have any way to express his taste because he's in prison. So right. all he has is this ability to just outsmart everyone and be the you know, and and, uh, and he's being a real asshole because. What else is he? This is his source of personal power in this incredibly limited situation. He doesn't have any use for the well-tailored person suit. The source of his power is, at this point is that he's a freak. Uh, you know, thousands of people send him mail, and yeah, so he's uh, a curiosity. And, a, and, and a, but it, it's still uh, people are paying attention to him. He's got influence, uh, in, and the, even the people who are keeping him in prison can't totally keep him from having some influence in the world. That's the way he has to do it, though. But when you look at what Hopkins did, uh, that performance is very effective when you only have 18 minutes on screen and you've got to make that character pop. But yeah. it gets very tiring when he's on the screen much more than that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was one of the problems with the Red Dragon movie. Yeah. Uh, it really overexposed him. And it comes uh, across as silly. Yes, and uh, Mickelson's performance is much more nuanced, and you you much you get a much uh, better sense of him of that closed off that he is playing a person, playing a human being. Uh, that uh, if you ever had the misfortune to know an actual sociopath, which I have had hmm. the pleasure too many times, uh, you you really see that flash. Of calculation in what in the middle of what looks like emotion, and Mads really projects that well. If you, if you know to look for it, uh, he is a very convincing sociopath. Uh, now, the way that Anthony Hopkins plays Hannibal is not as a sociopath. Uh, he is uh, more of a Nietzschean Superman who yeah. is choosing to experience the world in very exquisite. Sensation. Yeah, um, I was going to ask about that difference between the the, the Nietzsche yeah. and Superman versus the sociopath. And, and I think that the uh, the Superman version is more interesting, obviously, because that gets more into the idea of transformation. But that's just uh, I understand Ryan Filler's take on the whole thing is somewhat more mundane in that respect. You know, he he is not going to have Clarice eating uh, Krendler's brain. Uh, for <laughs> one thing, for one thing, Krendler is a woman in the new series, so. That would really be unpolitically correct, uh, but the the thing is, I thought that was a, a beautiful finish for both of the character arcs because Clarice isn't actively hunting people down and killing them, but she has presented this as a source of pleasure, a source of exquisite taste, 
that she hasn't had a chance to experience before. I've never had caper berries, and, <laughs> uh, and she is far gone enough not to blow it because of some obsolete human emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and that's the transformation. And that's the transformation. That is the point. The point at which she has become a completely new person is when she says, ask me if I sound like Oliver Twist when I ask for more. Yeah. <laughs> um, at that point, the nuclearese is complete, and uh, she's still not going to go hunting people down, but she's not going to argue with Hannibal if he wants to. That's, that's his thing. He's a godlike creature. She is now a godlike creature, and they are the great red dragon and the woman. I have, a, I, have a real hard time, I have a real hard time, though, with Clarice's transformation and seeing it as uh, emanating from her agency. I see this as more of like a... Well, that's because transformation doesn't emanate from your agency, full stop. <laughs> it's something... You I don't may start it at all for her. She's a victim of Lecter, and he's messing with her using hypnosis and, and drugs. Well, she's a victim of everybody. The, the thing about uh, her is she doesn't go out seeking transformation, but you don't always. I mean, sometimes it just comes looking for you. And, you know, the agent that starts her transformation isn't Hannibal. It's Krendler in page one of the novel. Uh, when the bust goes wrong and her career starts to go down the toilet and everything that she's ever believed in turns to shit. Uh, that leaves, that's what leaves her vulnerable to Hannibal respecting her when everything else is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, you know, it, it, it was a very finely guided thing and what they did in the movie totally didn't work by comparison. What, uh, what I like in the TV show with the relationship between Lecter and Graham is that Lecter is coaxing Graham into transforming into someone that Lecter can admire and yes. be friends with. And the, I never get that with, with Clarice, that that this is plausible, that, that, that she's transforming into something that Lecter can admire. That she she instead is his sculpture or, or work of art. And it, it, it falls well, back that's, because of that. that. Well, that, that's the case. I mean, she is his sculpture or his work of art, but she is also not entirely within his control. There's a, several passages in the book that make that very explicit that he's not sure. He knows that he's not going to get a carbon copy of Misha out of his transformation of Clarice, uh, but he may get something that is still better than it, was, uh, than it would have been otherwise and good enough. Um, but yeah, he knows that he's not going to turn her into his dead sister, uh, even though that was the original project. And realizing that is actually part of his maturation process, even though he's already become. He's, his, his transformation was complete before the first page of Red Dragon. He still has room to grow in his appreciation of the rest of the, uh, of the world and how other people are going through their processes. Uh, now, I don't think that was what Harris wanted to do. I think he wanted to have another detective who would be more like the Will Graham that we see in the series, who wow. would be in serious danger of being seduced by his own talent to think like uh, a person like Hannibal. And maybe uh, someone who's even tricked into killing someone or something and finds out they like it. Or I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, and and uh, since he was told he had to use Clarice as the main character, yeah. he came up with a way to transform her that was still shocking but was believably within the scope of what her previous personality might have become. Uh, so uh, 
So Clarice got screwed by the popular demand because if they had just left her alone, she could have had a much better outcome in the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at Silence of the Lambs, Silence of the Lambs wraps up with uh, everything nicely tied up for her, just like Red Dragon wraps up with Will Graham exactly. solidly. Uh, I mean, those, you don't those expect to see her again in the next book, really, from reading the book. You feel like, yeah, you feel exactly. satisfied. And 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 I think you know, and I think that's why it took eleven years for Hannibal to come out after Silence of the Lambs, because I think he actually started writing a totally different book, uh, and he was told, probably after the movie came out, uh, we really want something with Clarice in it. No, seriously. I wonder if there's a, a dusty desk copy of that other book laying around somewhere. <laughs> if there is, it's probably worth more money than God. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> So before we have to let you go, though, can I just ask you about the transhumanism part of this? Because uh, you, I understand that Lecter is in the, is in the transformation, um, and transhumanism is in the transformation, um, and we want to, and, and we don't, and we don't want to be. I, I take your point very seriously that we don't want to be all starry-eyed and and assume that um, becoming more than human is a good thing because there are more ways to become more than human. Than one, and Lecter represents one way of becoming more than human, but not necessarily a way that we should look towards for like our mm -hmm. way of navigating the singularity or something. Right. So I take that point very seriously, but I, but I, but at the same time, I would want to resist the idea that that would be the outcome uh, or of a, of transhumanism. That that's that that's a. Um, well, I I mean I didn't mean that. Just just like I don't think the universe is necessarily the abstract universe that permits magic to occur. Right. Uh, I don't think that's what would necessarily happen. But I think it's a probability that we would be foolish to dismiss out of hand. Absolutely. Uh, uh, if you are paying closer attention, you might also notice that. The metamorphosis of prime intellect has more than one metamorphosis in it because both Lawrence and Carolyn end up very different people right. than they entered the story. In fact, one of the funny stories about that is that, uh, of course, there is an incest scene in the final chapter, and I yeah. periodically get comments <laughs> that uh, accusing me of writing Lawrence as a Mary Sue because Lawrence gets to bone his daughter in chapter eight. Yeah. Uh, to which I usually <laughs> respond, that says a lot more about you than it does about me. Because, because the, he also bones the son. <laughs> yes, well the reason that that scene is there is to illustrate that whatever Lawrence was before the change has been completely destroyed. Yeah. Lawrence is now a completely different person. He is capable of doing things that he would never have done before the change. Carolyn was that way within a month. It took Lawrence another trauma and several centuries to sink in, but they are both now completely different people than they were before Prime Intellect rewrote the universe and threw them right. into this rabbit hole. So that's, that's interesting too because you know you do get a sense of uh, one of the things I like about the ending that's ambiguous the way we started this discussion is that you get a sense of this could be the Adam and Eve that we that is in our history. Like you get this feeling like, oh well, you know, maybe the singularity happened Hundred thousand years ago, and then these, you know, you hear these leftover stories, and and so I think that's an interesting, uh, suggestive idea that um, that our that this is kind of parallels our own origin or an origin story for us. And in the biblical story, something like this had to have happened. So I mean, you, you I mean, I think you were, in, I, I mean, I flinched a little bit to be honest when I read that. Yeah, it's not comfortable to read those kinds of mm -hmm. things, but at the same time, I think you're sort of pointing out, look, 
this is what happens when you take these kind of origin stories seriously. There are moments like these yeah. as a practical thing. Well, I mean, I like I like the idea of taking something that most people consider a bag of free ponies and asking what is the uh, where's the lump of coal at the bottom of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, that's where uh, Mortal Passage, the only story of mine that has actually been published, because the startup magazine Bullspec brought the bought the reprint rights, is the third story in the Passages in the Void series, and in Mortal Passage, we learned that these uh, AI robot spaceships were actually uploaded humans. But they were uploaded so long ago, and they've edited themselves so much that they've forgotten that they were human. Uh, and that's another transformation. Right. Uh, but, it, you know, again, you have people who are just, they can't wait to upload. Because then I won't have then I won't have to worry about time. And I feel that. I just had a stent put in last month. So, like, so uploading sounds pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, yes, give me some more reliable hardware, but there are all kinds of issues yeah. uh, with regard to control and, and, and it's, quality it's been, and all. It's that, been on the fringe for so long that uh, people haven't really talked about it, so we're just now starting to like think about what the ramifications are. And one of the things I think Peter said this before, and I agree with him, one of the things that's important about fiction is that it helps, it provides us a way to put ourselves into these positions and try to think through different uh, outcomes, which sometimes doing it from a sort of a priori or rationalistic point, point of view is hard to do. But when you're in the story, you kind of, it plays out. And that, I think that's going to be a valuable tool for helping us figure out like what we're supposed to do in the next 50 to 100 years when this stuff becomes more and more, more less and less science fiction and more and more science. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean that's a lot of what I was trying to do with these stories is is to I mean really uh, even though I wrote uh, mo many of them with the fact that there was an audience in mind it's still uh, whether it's the the fiction stories that I've written or the uh, the nonfiction essays a lot of it has been gathering my own thoughts together and and trying to figure out what do I think of these things because I think there is really a tendency for people not to think things through right. uh, and to take a really shallow uh, approach to things that have depth. And I like pointing out that there's something here. You know, even a simple thing like where your food comes from. People don't think about that. Yeah. I know we're a lot. You know, in, I, I've, I've worked in industry for 30 years, and the thing about scales and weighing equipment is uh, it takes me into everything. So, because yeah, they're incredibly pervasive. Uh, so, yeah, I've seen where your food comes from. I've seen where your construction materials come from. It's not pretty, uh, I there was, a, yeah. there was a Reddit thread recently of people um, writing in work experiences, and the theme, the United, the uniting theme was stuff that you wouldn't want to know that you learned on the job. <laughs> it was all, all the different versions of how the sausage is made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I've gotten like the life course in that because of where where my career has taken me, uh, and uh, it, it's just uh, I've had a very weird life, and uh, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, no doubt. I, and, and but I think that's an important <laughs> point that you're making, though, is that I mean, you know, they did a study on them recently where they asked kids. Uh, I think they were like fifth graders in LA or something, and they said, "Where where do green beans come from?" And the students, like a majority of them, answered, "They come from cans." Yeah. And they weren't. I mean, they, that was just where that's where they experienced them coming from. That was their answer. But you're right that because you know there, there's people like you who are doing it, 
and it's shielded off from from the consumers, and that's the way our society is set up. And so, you know, I buy the package thing. We have no idea how it was packaged or who packaged it or where it was shipped from. Um, and we are becoming increasingly disconnected, uh, and therefore probably have a less than realistic view about like what we could do <laughs> if we had exactly. to on our own. <laughs> yes. you know, we don't. We don't know how how lar how vast things are. Most people don't have any idea how expensive industrial crap is and how uh, different it is from consumer equipment because they've never seen it. They've never, you know, they've never been in the middle of a billion dollar chemical plant and seen a tank that costs more than your house. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, a motor that costs more than all of the houses on your block. Right. Uh, it uses enough electricity to power your entire neighborhood. Uh, things like that. The uh, the scale of industrial processes is beyond most people's imaginings. Uh, the functioning of a chicken plant, uh, which can take in a hundred thousand birds a day and take them apart and put them in little trays and send them to your grocer. Yeah. Uh, that involves a vast amount of hardware and a large number of workers doing absolutely shitty soul-killing work in right. order to make it happen. And the chickens um, don't like it either, I hear. Yeah. They, yeah no one asked their opinion at all. I mean, it's I mean, it's too bad we haven't <laughs> wrapped this up because this is starting to remind me of some of the things you said about the difference between pre-information age technology and make regular mechanical technology and that while you, you're worried about com computation and information processing, uh, to some degree, but you're not worried about like building fires with flint or something like that because you think that some, one's a continual process that has to be relearned, whereas the other one sort of stops you from having to learn the stuff. Is that a fair way of uh, categorizing what you're saying or what you would yeah, say? Yeah, it's pretty close. It, it, it's uh, we're getting into uh, a, an area where, like I said, we we are so disconnected from the real world in fundamental ways that. Uh, you wonder how anyone makes a decision at all. I mean, I, I wonder, it's like when I grew up, if you got a toy computer, it was a sham thing with a roll of paper in it made to look like the computers you saw on TV. And now we give our kids computers that would have been more powerful than the biggest supercomputer at the world's best university when I was in college. Exactly. To play Angry Birds on. Exactly. <laughs> and, play Doodle Jump on this. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, what does that do to, to, your, to your perception, though? Because I'm, I remember when I first started programming computers that the, this, this opened up a whole world to me that was so pristine and perfect and different in its rules that it had to be approached uh, in a fundamentally different way than real life. And now... These kids, their first world yeah. is the world of the computer, right. and it's a messy world. It's a world with bugs and malware and all these. Uh, every every time you turn a corner, somebody's trying to sell you something, and we and take it's it. It's a world full of things that are already there and doing things on their own. So it seems natural to talk about yeah. computers as, as agents and doing stuff. And, and we take it completely for granted that that the normal rules of instanti instantiation and persistence and all don't work in the virtual world of a computer. They're not enforced, and since they cause problems, they're 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 just they're just not there. Uh, and when you grow up taking that for granted as the normal mode of operation, I mean, the idea that we can have a little box on our hip 
that we can just pick up and program a number into and talk to anyone else in the world who has one of these little boxes on their hip. That's freaking Star Trek, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's the future. The uh, One of my favorite movies is Colossus, The Forbin Project, which was made in 1974. And it was very influential in on me in the design of how the singularity unfolds in Prime Intellect. Uh, but it's really funny because it's one of the last movies that was made when computers were still so mysterious and expensive that you couldn't afford one if you were just a movie studio. So the computers are sham props. Uh, the monitors are very obviously projectors with film script strips behind them. Yeah. Uh, and they have video conferencing, you know, they, these because these are all high-powered people. Forbin is the Lawrence of this world. He builds this massive computer. They give it control of the uh, nuclear arsenal so that it will be... Uh, keep us all safe from the Soviets, and of course it gets in touch with its Russian counterpart, and they take over the world. And so, uh, and and uh, yeah, take that Cold War, <laughs> right? Uh, so, but uh, but the thing is, they have they have video conferencing, right? So they have these hilarious CRT-based monitors with Viticon camera tubes mounted above them in the desks, and everyone gathers around them to have a video call. <laughs> and I, so I rewatched it recently. It's like, you know, if you could take an iPhone back to this era, right. no one would, it, it would, no, that's, I'm, I'm dreaming, right? This is, this isn't real. You'd, you'd be <laughs> Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I went back and visited myself from 1982 and, uh, and told him what computers can do, uh, in the 2000s, I wouldn't believe myself. Oh, yeah. I know. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I remember in the early 90s when I was seeing processor speeds approaching one gigahertz and thinking that was just the nuttiest thing ever. I yeah. mean, it's like, how does anyone think this is going to work? I mean, you're going to, and well, they make it work, you know. The, the, you know. It's like, I remember trying to keep a one megahertz amplifier from oscillating when I was doing ham radio stuff in my teens and uh, and now it's like, you know, there's a different signal on this side of the circuit board than that one because the frequency is so high. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing the progress. I remember the same. Uh, I have a similar kind of experience with just not being able to predict how rapidly it was going to change so quickly. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, but, but we still don't have flying cars. My wife. No, nope, I was just going to say that. Nope, I'm waiting for my flying car. Exactly. Google will bring us flying cars. Well, yeah. an automated and they'll drive themselves. Car. That's right. Yes, that's right. An automated flying and driving car. Yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think that's it for me. Yeah, we're winding up here. I feel like we could talk to you all night, Roger. So we might have to might have to have you back on someday to finish this conversation. Uh, I think I would be up for that. Cool. Yeah, this has been really terrific, and thank you very much for being. I've had on. a lot of I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely, great fun to meet you. Great fun to talk to you, and I still feel like I have a thousand things that we could talk about. So. Yeah, I feel like we we're just getting started. This is kind of crazy that it's been two hours already. <laughs> take, take some notes, and we can do it again soon. Absolutely, it would be terrific. We'd love to have you back on. <laughs> I, I'd love to be back. Cool. All well, right. thank you very much, Roger. Okay, Roger Williams. Thanks for being on Space Time Mind. My pleasure. And uh, we will we'll see you in cyberspace. <laughs>
Bye. Bye.